Monitor Monday is recorded before a live online audience. It's morning in America. It's Monitor Monday. For rural hospitals and small town clinics, big city health systems, and healthcare professionals, Monday means Monitor Monday. And Monday means gearing up for another week of audits by the government and health plans. Here now with the latest regulatory and audit news is the publisher of Rack Monitor and the host of Monitor Monday, Chuck Buck. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to another live edition of Monitor Monday. I'm J. Paul Spencer, sitting in for Chuck Buck. On today's Monitor Monday, inpatient versus outpatient status, an old story, but one with new urgency, as you'll learn later in the broadcast when Dr. Kathy Seward joins us. In other news, there are new priorities from the Center for Program Integrity. Healthcare attorney Andrew Walkler is standing by with that story. A major drug company is in the news. Kickbacks, lavish dinners, and trips to the Kentucky Derby. Famed whistleblower Mary Inman is standing by in London with this major story. Monitor Monday senior correspondent Nancy Beckley has all the latest hot topics in the Monitor Monday listener survey. And healthcare attorney David Glazer has another example of risky business. But we begin this morning with Dr. Ronald Hirsch, who is making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday. Monday Rounds is sponsored by R1 RCM. Here now making his Monday Rounds is Dr. Ronald Hirsch. Well, good morning, all. Last Thursday, Rack Monitor E-News had several excellent articles. I hope you read them all. If you haven't, go back and do it. Um, And it just so happens that last week I attended a CMS compliance conference and can provide more information on a couple of the issues addressed in those articles. The speakers at this conference from the MACs talked a lot about the targeted probe and educate process, but mostly in generality. We did see some preliminary data on the program, which showed that about 20% of all Part A and B providers who were audited failed the first round and went on to round two. Of those, 30% then failed the second round and went on to round three, and of those, 35% failed the third round. That means for every 100 providers who were audited, about two were referred to CMS for failing three rounds. But the big question was what happened then? And CMS was rather vague. It suggested that many of those simply underwent a fourth round of audits. CMS would not comment if any were referred to the RACs or the UPIC. CMS also heard from several attendees that the quality of the MAC education sessions were very variable. And a CMS representative gave a very interesting possible explanation. She stated that many of the nurses who were doing the education had spent much of their careers working for the MAC simply reviewing charts. And having to interact directly with providers was something new for them, and they needed more training. CMS was also questioned about the difficulty providers were having with the DRG validation audits being done by some MACs with the MACs very eager to deny diagnoses like malnutrition, but completely unwilling to share what criteria they're using to make that decision. One audience member also pointed out that her system has facilities in two MAC jurisdictions, and the two MACs use different criteria. CMS did acknowledge the MACs need to do a better job of coordination. Although not on the agenda, CMS also heard, at least from me, 
that the QIOs were doing a poor job with their one-day stay reviews for total knee replacement. And as some of you may have heard, CMS just paused the short-stay audits for a few months, reportedly to switch contractors once again. Maybe all my past complaints actually made a difference. CMS also seemed dismayed to hear that the error rate on the TPE audits does not get adjusted if you get your denials reversed on appeal. So you could win all of your appeals and still have to face another round of audits. They didn't promise a quick fix, but they'll look into it. We also found out that no MACs are using the discretion of Transmittal 541 to deny physician claims when a hospital is denied, but they heard loud and clear from attendees that they should use that discretion. I also asked about the blog post from Seema Verma about the RACs that was published a couple weeks ago and was assured that nothing new is happening with the RACs. It was simply published to keep a steady stream of blogs, so there's no need for us to panic. Finally, I asked why CMS transmittals have an effective date and implementation date that can be months apart, and the CMS people in attendance had no idea. The response they gave, that's the CMS way. Back to you, Jay Paul. Thank you, Dr. Hirsch. That was the Vice President of R1RCM, Ronald Hirsch, MD. Dr. Hirsch was making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday. And now with the latest hot topics in the Monitor Monday listener survey, here is Monitor Monday Senior Correspondent Nancy Beckley. Good morning, Nancy. Hey, Paul. Thanks for uh, hosting this morning. Bad day for therapy last week. Uh, the Department of Justice, various jurisdictions announced a couple of cases worthy of note. The United States Attorney's Office for the Southern District of New York followed up on a $30 million fraud scheme where the medical director and a physical therapist were each found guilty of perpetrating this criminal fraud. Uh, they pretended to provide PT treatments and the patients were receiving cash kickbacks for coming to the clinics. I won't go any further on that because that's things us in therapy don't really like to talk about, but it was definitely perpetrating a criminal fraud and they were sentenced and fined. Uh, the next case up is out of the United States Attorney's Office for the District of Hawaii, where an Oahu physical therapist was sentenced to 42 months in a multi-million dollar healthcare fraud scheme and ordered to pay $3.7 million in restitution. And he submitted millions of dollars of false claims for payment for physical therapy to TRICARE, Medicare, Medicaid, and HMSA. He falsely claimed he personally provided physical therapy to his patients when in reality, his staff members who were not licensed provided the services. And he was often not present in the clinic when his patient received treatment. Nearly 70% of this physical therapist's total billings over six years were fraudulent. And then probably a case that's a little bit more close to home that can happen to any physical therapy clinic in the presence of a whistleblower is out of the United States Attorney's Office for the District of South Carolina, where the United States contended that this Carolina physical therapist Noble billed and submitted claims to care and care services provided to multiple patients simultaneously as though the services were being provided by one patient at a time. Additionally, the U.S. contended that this therapist clinic knowingly submitted claims to Medicare and TRICARE for services provided by therapy assistants who were not properly supervised by a physical therapist. 
I'll be reporting further on these types of cases in my upcoming webinar with Monitor Monday. Now let's bring up the poll. We've had a lot of discussion on this program on Targeted Probe and Educate. A recent article in Rack Monitor suggested that TPE is not as it seems and may be a wolf in sheep's clothes. What's your experience with TPE? Check A if you have had a positive experience in TPE. Check B if you've had both positive and a not-so-positive experience in TPE. Check C that you've had a not-so-positive experience in TPE. And D if you had no experience in TPE. Thank you, Paul. We'll have the results of the survey later in the broadcast. Thanks, Nancy. That was Monitor Monday senior correspondent Nancy Beckley. Nancy is also the president and CEO of Nancy Beckley and Associates. And as Nancy said, we'll have the results of the Monitor Monday listener survey later in the broadcast. And coming up in a few minutes in your time zone, you'll hear from Mary Inman, David Glazer, Dr. Kathy Seward, and Andrew Walkler. And I'm Jay Paul Spencer sitting in for Chuck Buck on Monday, May 13th. This is Monitor Monday. Stand by. What will earning the Certified Coding Specialist Physician-Based Credential do for you? Earning Nahima's industry regarding CCSP credential can improve your earning potential, expand career advancement opportunities, and position you as a leader and role model in the industry. It lets you connect with a strong network of AHEMA-certified peers and much more. Sit for the exam with confidence. AHEMA's comprehensive virtual exam prep bundle includes an on-demand webinar series, virtual interactive learning session, exam prep book, and the exam voucher for one low price. Learn more at ahema.org slash certification. Thanks, Clark. By the way, the current edition of the Auditor Monitor gives you a deep dive on the Medicare Administrative Contractors. You'll learn all about MACs, including information you didn't know about the MACs, like the number of claims they process each year and the errors they've made. All this and more can be found in the current edition of the Auditor Monitor. Subscribe now. Go to Rack University Bookstore and order your subscription today and start receiving your edition of the Auditor Monitor. And now for the Monitor Monday Risky Business segment, here is healthcare attorney David Glazer. Good morning, David. What's risky this morning? Good morning, Paul. So today it's less about what's risky and more about how last week was an incredibly busy news week. So I'm going to cover three topics. First, President Trump made comments with rare bipartisan support, criticizing the unexpected high fees that patients pay for out-of-network care. As we discussed last week, if you blindside patients with a high bill, that may vi violate an implied contract. But this may be one of the rare situations where additional regulation adds clarity that's beneficial to all involved. Good or not, it seems safe to assume, safe to assume regulatory change and enforcement actions are up on tap. So second, and perhaps the biggest news, CMS released long-awaited guidance about sharing space in the hospital setting. While there were some positives in the new guidance, including clarity that shared waiting rooms are acceptable, I'll say I'm a bit disappointed. I think even with this new guidance, while it's better than the current position taken by regional offices, the guidance is inconsistent with both the wording and the spirit of the regulation. Now, there's a legitimate policy concern that's the foundation of this guidance. Preventing situations where patients are surprised by hospital copayments when they expected to be treated like clinic patients. 
The provider-based regulations require that the facility make the patient aware that they're in hospital space. It's often called the public awareness requirement. That requirement is fair. The new guidance, however, focuses on things like the paths of various corridors, suggesting that if a hallway goes through clinical space, then that hallway may not be used by patients from a different provider. I find that principle difficult to apply and completely unrelated to the policy of making sure patients know whether they'll receive a hospital bill. Whether a particular corridor goes through or around a unit seems like an arbitrary way to decide whether or not entities can share space. Now, maybe I need to watch more Sesame Street, but I don't understand what it means for a hallway to go through as opposed to past a lab. The good news is that CMS is allowing public comment on this policy. Comments can be made until July 2nd. Um, I know Fredrickson's going to be putting together comments on behalf of its clients, and I encourage listeners to do the same. We will be suggesting that the emphasis of the policy return to patient awareness and not issues like whether medical records are shared. So finally, the Department of Justice issued new guidance allowing U.S. attorneys more flexibilities to reduce False Claims Act penalties when an organization cooperates with an investigation, voluntarily discloses problems, or takes remedial actions. This new guidance is definitely great news, and I will talk about it more in coming weeks. But in the meantime, if you want to see details about either this or the CMS co-location memo, we've got both of them. If you look above my smiling face, there's a black bar on the far right side of it. You can see links from David Glazer. Click on either one of those, and it will take you to the actual source document. Paul, with your musical talent, I am sure that you can dance and sing. Now, I also know you're not an Eagles fan, so you're not going to like this song. And there's a problem, which is when I'm said and done, I haven't told you a thing. With all the news today, I opted to go with Don Henley's Dirty Laundry, because it's the only song about the news that I know. Back to you. Thank you, David. Uh, that was healthcare attorney David Glazer. David is a shareholder in the law firm of Fredrickson and Byron in downtown Minneapolis. U.S. World Meds has agreed to pay $17.5 million to resolve allegations that it violated the False Claims Act by paying kickbacks to patients and physicians to improperly induce prescriptions of its drugs, Apikin and Myoblock. Calling in live from London at this hour is famed whistleblower attorney Mary Inman. Good morning, Mary. What's the latest on this story? Good morning, Jay Paul. Late last week, U.S. World Meds, a pharmaceutical manufacturer, agreed to pay the Department of Justice $17.5 million to resolve two whistleblowers' claims that it violated the False Claims Act by paying kickbacks to patients and doctors to boost sales of two of their drugs, Apikin, a drug used to treat Parkinson's disease, and Myoblock, a drug used to assist in certain high-risk pregnancies. This settlement illustrates the sheer variety of forms alleged kickbacks paid to physicians can take and how lucrative they can be. 
Broadly speaking, the anti-kickback statute prohibits healthcare providers, including pharmaceutical companies, from paying or receiving kickbacks, remuneration, or anything of value to induce patients to purchase or use a company's drugs. The law seeks to prevent physicians prescribing medically unnecessary medications and is also intended to ensure that a physician's medical judgment is not compromised by financial incentives and is solely based on the best interests of the patient. DOJ settlement with U.S. World Meds resolves allegations surrounding two basic schemes. The first scheme allegedly sought to induce patients to purchase Apokin by offering them waivers of co-pays, a fee Medicare beneficiaries are required to pay for medications. These fees are generally paid in the form of a co-payment of a deductible, and they are legally mandated. Drug drug makers reimbursing patients for these costs can run afoul of the anti-kickback statute. After U.S. World Meds raised prices of Apokin in 2012, many patients' co-pays exceeded $5,000 a year. At the same time, U.S. World Meds allegedly funded a third-party foundation that paid the co-pays of many patients with the goal of increasing the sales of Apokin at the new, higher rate. U.S. World Meds was the foundation's only donor. For the second scheme, U.S. World Meds allegedly also provided certain physicians with kickbacks that were meant to induce them into prescribing more Apokin and Myoblock. The doctors were paid excessive consulting and speaker fees and also were bought lavish meals, private plane rides to Hawaii, and all expenses paid trips for them and their spouses to the Kentucky Derby, where one doctor experienced the event from the U.S. World Meds Company box. The schemes were alleged to be both large, long-running, and nationwide. In addition to paying the $17.5 million, U.S. World Meds entered into a five-year corporate integrity agreement with the government. Under the terms of the agreement, U.S. World Meds will need to hire an outside independent review organization to monitor its promotional activities and its interactions with third-party charities. These alleged fraud schemes were revealed in two different lawsuits brought by two whistleblowers, a former national sales director and a former senior medical director at U.S. World Meds. The whistleblowers will receive an award of over $3 million under the key TAM provisions of the False Claims Act, which allow private persons to file suit against entities that defraud the government, and if their suits are successful, whistleblowers are entitled to receive between 15 and 25% of the government recovery. The whistleblowers alleged further wrongdoing, such as off-label marketing of the drugs for com- of drugs for cosmetic dental use. However, those allegations have not yet been resolved. As these cases demonstrate, the vigilant eyes of pharmaceutical employees are essential in combating the increasing number of frauds involving kickbacks. Given that business relationships, such as the one between U.S. World Meds and physicians, are often opaque and require the perspective of company insiders. Back to you, Paul. Thank you, Mary. Calling in live from London was famed whistleblower attorney Mary Inman. Mary is a partner in the London office of Constantine Cannon. As we mentioned at the top of the broadcast, the Center for Program Integrity has some new initiatives. Here now to report on this developing story is healthcare attorney Andrew Walkler. Thank you, Paul. As a member of the planning committee for American Health Lawyers Medicare Medicaid Conference, I had an opportunity to uh, help put together a program uh, by the Center of Program Integrity. It included Lori Beeline, who's the acting director, as well as Carrie Ward from Clarence, who is uh, 
uh, a ZPIC or UPIC now and an iMedic, and I'll talk about what, what that includes. And they uh, articulated their uh, priorities as investing in data and analytics to support fraud detection and prevention efforts to, to reduce the provider burden, to strengthen collaboration with their uh, own partners uh, uh, that help with their fraud abuse investigations, to enhance oversight of the Medicaid program, combat, combat opioid uh, crisis, and to look at the vulnerabilities uh, of the uh, Medicare program. The, the contractors that are participating to identify and prevent fraud are the MACs, as you know, with the targeted probe and educate, the RACs to detect and correct past improper payments, the UPICs are focusing on fraud and improper payments, and the MEDIC is the Medicare Direct Drug Integrity Contractor, and they're focusing on improper payments from Part C and uh, D. Uh, the, 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 the authority that they have or that they refer to in terms of administrative actions include referrals to law enforcement, suspension of payments, prepayment reviews, postpayment reviews, uh, system edits in Medicare Part A and B, referrals to the uh, quality improvement organizations, medical or pharmacy boards, and significantly revocations and exclusions. Now, one of the programs they've really focused on this year is what they call tele-defrauding, and that has been in the DME area where you have a DME supplier, a telemarketer, a doctor, and a patient. And uh, what, uh, what is happening is that there is a, a marketing um, scheme where uh, people will call in, and they will then get a, in order to get a, a physician uh, order, for DME, uh, braces uh, particularly, um, they would get from a doctor they had no prior relationship, would talk them over the phone and order uh, the DME. And this does not comply with the requirements of the Medicare program, which requires a pre-existing relationship between the doctor and the beneficiary. So that is uh, one, of, uh, one of their focuses, and the fact that they can check that there's no prior relationship would uh, indicate to them that, that there may be a fraud. An another key focus is with the um, uh, medic is on Part C and D, investigations that review the provider's billings in Part C, so we're seeing more audits out of Part C, and also confirming that the plan sponsors of uh, Part D claims are appropriately uh, processing uh, those claims. And um, uh, as a result of uh, all of these uh, actions, we're seeing um, investigations that are coming from various sources, uh, Medicare and Medicaid uh, identifying aberrant billing, uh, complaints received by Medicare administrative contractors, plan sponsors, pharmacy benefit man uh, uh, managers in a hotline, uh, and uh, others. So it's very active, much more coordinated. With that, back to you, Paul. Thank you, Stu. That was healthcare attorney Andrew Walkler. Mr. Walkler is the managing partner at Walkler & Associates. Confusion appears to be hampering important decisions when it comes to patient status. 
particularly the status of psychiatric patients who are waiting in the emergency department to be transferred to a psychiatric hospital. Reporting on our lead story this morning is Dr. Kathy Seward. Good morning, Dr. Seward. Good morning, Paul. Tens of thousands of patients present to the emergency department each year expressing suicidal ideation. These patients are often viewed as low acuity, yet they require emergent attention. According to the CDC, approximately 45,000 Americans die each year by suicide, making suicide the 10th leading cause of death in the United States overall and the second leading cause of death among Americans between the ages of 10 and 44 years. And suicide risk increases in patients with physical illnesses such as cancer, COPD, diabetes, and heart disease. The acute management of suicidal ideation includes medical stabilization, reduction of any immediate risk, management of underlying factors and psychiatric disorders, treatment planning, monitoring, and follow-up. Patients should be placed in specialized rooms that are free of objects that pose a risk for self-harm while receiving constant one-to-one monitoring. Given the significant risk of mortality associated with this patient population and the extraordinary utilization of resources required to provide the appropriate care, I wonder why there is so much controversy related to patient status selection. Now, to be fair, the two-minute rule is often more complicated than it sounds, but the simple fact that a psychiatric patient is involved should not raise any additional concerns when it comes to patient status selection. The decision to admit any patient to inpatient status or place the patient in outpatient with observation services should be made based on the anticipated length of stay in that hospital. Specific to psychiatric cases, if the patient is expected to be transferred to an inpatient psychiatric facility prior to the second midnight, the patient should be placed in outpatient with observation services. If the patient will require hospital treatment that spans two midnights, the patient may be appropriate for inpatient status. While the patient is awaiting transfer to an inpatient psychiatric facility, the patient should receive a thorough psychiatric assessment conducted by a psychiatrist who can explain the patient's disease process to the patient and initiate appropriate treatment. This could be performed by an in-person psychiatrist or by a telepsychiatrist. For those patients that are initially placed in outpatient with observation services, expecting to be transferred to an inpatient psychiatric unit the next day, but then require a second midnight in the hospital, the decision to make them inpatient should be based on the need and provision of ongoing psychiatric care by nursing, social work, case management, and physician staff. Patients that are not receiving ongoing psychiatric care should remain outpatient. We need to stop distinguishing between psychiatric patients and other patients when determining patient status. While there are meaningful differences among all patients as it relates to the specific care they need, the principles that guide patient status selection are universal. Thanks, Paul. Thank you, Dr. Seward. That was Dr. Kathy Seward. Dr. Seward is the Chief Medical Officer for Clear Solutions Incorporated, and you can read Dr. Seward's reporting on this confusing issue in Thursday's edition of the Rack Monitor News. 
Here now with the results of the Monitor Monday listener survey is Nancy Beckley. This is a great survey, it looks like, for our listeners because we are talking about TPE quite a bit. And so here's our responses. We have 11.5% today have had a positive experience in TPE, with 35% having both positive and not so positive, with 13% a not so positive experience, and then 40% of our listeners no experience in TPE. And it'll be great for us to continue to monitor this TPE process, especially after hearing Dr. Hirsch's report today. Thank you, Nancy. Now's the time for our Monitor Monday Q&A. And now, once again, here is David Glazer. Hi, Paul. So first off, an apology to everyone, because I missed an obvious opportunity. It was pointed out to me I should have used Huey Lewis in the news. So, Mary, question for you. If the drug company uses a means test, can they then waive copayments? If, you know, so if, if, they're looking, if they're waiving copayments for the poor, does that work? Yes, it does. The only legitimate reason to waive co-pays and deductibles is in relation to the patient's financial hardship. And if the patient can show by virtue of their income, their assets, their expenses, local cost of living, family size, the extent of their existing medical bills, all of those things taken together, yes, that um, depending on what those financial circumstances show, um, hardship is certainly one legitimate reason for a copay to be waived. Thank you so much, Mary. I have a couple more questions, but that's all we have time for, so we will deal with those later, and I will turn it back to you, Paul. Thanks, David. That's going to be a wrap for us. Thank you so very much for being with us today. Special thanks to our outstanding panelists, Nancy Beckley, David Glazer, Dr. Ronald Hirsch, Mary Inman calling in live from London, Dr. Kathy Seward, and Andrew Walkler. We thank you for starting off your week with us this morning, and we look forward to your being here next Monday when Chuck Buck returns with another live edition of Monitor Monday. Until then, I'm J. Paul Spencer, Senior Compliance Consultant for Doctors Management, LLC, reporting for Monitor Monday and Rack Monitor. Thank you again for being with us. Monitor Monday is a presentation of Rack Monitor. Rack Monitor.